Hi, welcome to FizzGig. I'm Wendy Althwaite and I admit to being fascinated by fizz, the taste, the tingle and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So, here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today, as Christmas approaches, we're going to talk about the traditions of the festive season. Whilst nowadays you're more likely to enjoy bubbles with your baubles, we'll explore some of the boozy traditions of Yuletide past in the UK. As the weather outside is frightful, often the alcohol was warmed and warming. I'll try and explore them roughly chronologically, so spoiler alert, we'll wade into the depths of still alcohol. But don't worry, we'll end up with our favourite sparkling stuff for our Christmas cheers. But we'll start with wassailing. This comes from the Old Norse, Vas Hail, and the Hail is good health, as in hail and hearty. The Christmas tide, English drinking tradition after a good harvest, usually of apples, was to return to the fruit trees, sing to them, wish them health, perhaps share a little cider with them, and drink. This ensured a good harvest the following year. If you were rich enough, you could wassail on each of the 12 days of Christmas. There's a wassailing bowl, a communal cup, containing a hot mulled punch. Some of these could be impressively beautiful and capacious. The wassail bowl of Jesus College, Oxford, is covered with silver and holds 10 gallons, which is over 45 litres. Seriously impressive when you realise it was taken to go and drunk from en route. Although, I suspect the rich stayed in a nice warm hall and drank it there. Many recipes exist, but typically a wassail is warm cider flavoured with sugar, cinnamon, nutmeg and toast floating on the top, although you can get a wine-based wassail cup, often strengthened with brandy or sherry. You almost always have toast, apple or orange added as a throwback to the medieval version of a cocktail embellishment. A wassail ritual will typically involve a procession to the trees led by the wassail king and queen, raucous singing, scaring away evil spirits by making loud noises like banging drums or, which definitely won't survive a health and safety check, firing a shotgun, and encouraging good spirits appearing in the guise of robins by hanging alcohol-soaked toast on the branches. The wassail queen is usually a young girl and it helps if she's light because she'll be hefted up to the branches to hang the soggy toast. If a young boy is chosen for the toast placement, he's nicknamed Tom Tit. The wassail cup is spilt so that the tree gets its share, reminiscent of an offering to the gods. In medieval times, you could also drink lamb's wool, which was a hot mead into which roasted crab apples were dropped and burst open to reveal their frothy white fruit, looking a little bit like fluffy white lambs. Hence the name? Well, some people think it's called lamb's wool because it's associated with Lamass Day on the 17th of January. I won't subject you to my wassailing carols, 
There are lots online which will sound better, but they're almost all simple tunes involving the repetition of the word wassail. Here we go a wassailing, a wassailing, a wassailing. You get the picture. Very good to keep in step around the orchard though. Wassailing persists in England wherever cider apples grow. And as you know, many former orchard sites make good vineyard sites, so wassailing has now started in some vineyards too. It can happen all the time or any time over the Christmas period, but tends to happen on Twelfth Night, which will be Sunday the 5th of January. If all goes well, there'll be a bountiful harvest later in the year. Oddly, wassailing pops up whenever you least expect it. In 1992, Blur did a cover of the Gloucestershire wassailing song, and even the Simpsons drank traditional British wassail, although they didn't enjoy it. As the UK is largely a post-agricultural society, wassailing is on the wane. Possibly because of its pre-Christian pagan roots, possibly because people prefer to stay indoors in winter rather than tramping around orchards and vineyards, but its influence lives on. For example, in mulled wine. Mulled wine is spiced wine made with red wine, spices and raisins and drunk warm in most northern European countries around Christmas time and it's a staple feature of every Christmas market. Of course, wine has been spiced since Roman times. It was called Ippocras and the spices and toast covered up the taste of bad wine. But mulled wine has appeared in English medieval cookery books since 1390. Later, the famous Mrs. Beaton perfected it as to every pint of wine, allow one large cupful of water, sugar and spice to taste. Her wines were usually port or claret, and the spices were cloves, nutmeg, cinnamon and mace, with lots of sugar and strips of crisp, dry toast or biscuits. Modern recipes often have oranges, lemons, ginger, cardamom and star anise. Which makes sense, because the meaning of mulled in mulled wine doesn't really need to be bulled over. It just means heating with spices. There are limitless variations, so often honey and pepper are added elsewhere to ward off winter colds. So Germans drink Glühwein, literally glowing wine, because it's warmed and glows, not because it has that effect on your nose. Nordics drink Glurg, but don't glug too much Glurg, as it can be quite strong as spirits and almonds are added, although I don't blame the almonds. And the Dutch drink it as Bishopswein, which appropriately uses oranges and is sipped on the 5th of December whilst waiting for Sinterklaas to arrive, preferably with presents, on the 6th. An equivalent of mulled wine pops up just about everywhere. Warm and warming, it's as Christmassy as mince pie. But it lacks the punch of, well, punch, mulled wine's stronger cousin. In 1632, Thomas Coley, a merchant with the East India Company, was urged to drink punch by no allowance. The word punch is said to mean five. It's an anglicisation of Hindi and refers to five ingredients, water, alcohol, fruit juice, sugar and spice. Although originally it only had four ingredients, eau de vie, rose water, lemons and sugar. So it may in fact be named after the onboard's drinks barrel, the punchian. The first proper recipe is found in Hannah Woolley's The Queen-like Closet of 1670. Take one quart of claret, half a pint of brandy, and a little nutmeg grated, a little sugar, the juice of a lemon, 
and so drink it. Toast, raisins, cinnamon, nuts, ambergris and other ingredients could also be added. Just so that you know, ambergris comes from a sperm whale. They eat a lot of cephalopods, squid and cuttlefish, but can't digest the beaks and pens. These process through the whale and are compacted and surrounded by a fatty secretion to make it harmless to the whale. It emerges from the whale, and no one is entirely sure from which end, either it's pretty disgusting, as a grey-brown rock that floats on the sea, often for years. You can see how it got its name, grey amber. Its original owner, which is foul, modifies over time and tide to become merely musky. It's highly prized in the perfume industry. It's fiercely expensive and, as you see, is devoured greedily as an aphrodisiac. Brits, then accustomed to weak beer and cider, guzzled punch with abandon. So spirits had to be taxed more to restrain them and recalibrate the proportion of punch's ingredients. By the 18th century, a classic, perfectly balanced punch recipe emerged. The measures were as easy as one, two, three, four, or sour, sweet, strong, weak. It was one of sour, so lemon, lime, or orange juice, two of sweet, sugar, three of strong, brandy, rum, arak, or wine, four of weak, water, tea, milk, or eggs. Over time, with the discovery of new liqueurs and wines, punch became less acidic and sweeter. It became part of the Christmas ritual and was often the cup of kindness sung about, and indeed with, Old Lang Syne. In the early 19th century, these punches could be warmed to ward off the winter chill, as in Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where the brandy was set alight and the punch was flamed, so that the spectacle was as important as the drink. But now they're drunk at ambient temperatures. Bompus and Pa hold the record for the largest punch bowl in the world. It was a room holding 4,000 litres called the Architectural Punch Bowl. By the way, being punch drunk doesn't mean that you've overindulged on punch. It comes from boxing and describes the boxer staggering around as if he were drunk because he's been punched so hard or so often. So Brits take their Christmas booze seriously and add it to almost all their festive food. It's all steeped in alcohol and given time to infuse. Christmas pudding was originally a fasting, not a feasting food. It was a savoury pottage called frumenty, which was a sort of medieval cracked wheat porridge or soup, and later it had a small amount of meat added to bolster its nutritional value. In time, dried fruit, such as raisins, known then as plums, so rethink your idea of plum pudding, were added to make it less bland. However, over time, the unpromising fasting frumenty of Advent evolved into the feasting Christmas pudding, Christmas cake and minced pies. Remember the meat. It transformed from savoury to sweet and became laden with fruit, breadcrumbs and, most importantly, alcohol. In church, the last Sunday before Advent has a prayer which starts... Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works. This was Stir Up Sunday, and it was a sign for everyone to go home to start their Christmas pudding, tipping in fruit and stirring in brandy, giving it five weeks to infuse and mature. 
The familiar cannonball shape of the Christmas pudding comes from being boiled in a pudding cloth. The plum pudding, or figgy pudding, was packed with dried fruit, spices, alcohol, suet and eggs, and the brandy intensified the flavours of the fruit. The pudding is again doused in brandy and baptised in fire as it's presented at table. You may be worrying about the alcohol burning off in the flame. Fear not, says me, if mighty dread has seized your troubled minds. Glad tidings, the great joy I bring is brandy butter. Brandy butter, or its sister from northern England, rum butter, is butter, sugar and alcohol blended together and used as an accompaniment, rather like ice cream, for pudding. It even melts against the warm pudding, and it's delicious. It also goes with mince pies, and for Boxing Day breakfast, toast. So next time you sing, we wish you a Merry Christmas, you may remember that the singers asking for figgy pudding are probably peckish after a month of fasting on frugal frumen tea. No wonder we won't go until we get some. So let's go back a bit in time to the medieval frothy thickness of eggnog. We think of this as a Northern American phenomenon, and I'd always believed that it had gone to the USA with the Dutch, and that the Brits were only familiar with it from Christmas films and Avocar from the darkest recesses of 70s drinks cabinets. But it turns out I'm wrong. It's English. The nog of eggnog is confusing. It could refer to the strong East Anglian beer of that name, but it could also be an abbreviation of noggin, which was the carved wooden mug for alcohol. Or it could be a combination of egg and grog, which is slang for alcohol, influenced by noggin, where people asked for egg and grog, eggnog. Nug in Scotland is an ale warmed with a hot poker, so it could have been an egg nug. But however it started, it's now eggnog, although the spelling, hyphenation and number of words continue to be eclectic. Eggnog is a derivation of posset, a drink made with hot milk, curdled with wine or ale and flavoured with spices. It was a medieval cold remedy drunk from a two-handed posset pot. These days, a posset is a mousse-like pudding. By the 13th century, monks were adding eggs and figs to it. At first, eggnog was prohibitively expensive. The aristocracy started combining milk, eggs and sherry, brandy or Madeira as a display of wealth, but it became really popular when eggnog went to America and in the 18th century benefited from the less expensive and readily available rum. Eggnog is basically a stirred custard made of milk and egg, almost identical to ice cream without the ice. It's made of milk or cream with eggs, a spirit of choice and spices such as vanilla, nutmeg or cloves. It's usually drunk chilled, although a hot version, a Tom and Jerry, was briefly popular. Be aware that commercial eggnog uses gelatin or other thickeners to thicken it, so there's much less egg in your nog. And modern eggnog has reinvented itself as a popular latte flavouring. But now, what you've been waiting for. Let's put the fizz into the festivities. People love their fizz at Christmas. Champagne, English sparkling, carver, prosecco, sect or whatever. It's the perfect celebration wine because it's a complete sensory adventure. First, there's the excitement of removing the cork with the chance that it might fly wildly from the bottle. It's thrilling. Then there's the iconic 
pop anything from an eardrum assault to the sigh of release before the fizz, an onomatopoeic word to describe the sound of bubbles escaping from the bottle like a frenzied free genie, often followed by an overflow of foam. Whilst wine connoisseurs are careful not to spill a drop, an exuberant opening ensures an eruption of effervescence. Once in the glass, the mesmeric rise of the bubbles fascinate, while the teasing tickle of the nostrils and the tingle on the tongue promises much. The bubbles explode in your mouth and you taste zesty citrus and ripe stone fruit warm brioche, ending in an uplifting zing. It's sublime stuff. And at the more expensive price point, sparkling wines are a luxury to be relished at this special, indulgent, celebratory time of the year. I think they're best enjoyed on their own. But there's a panoply of Christmas cocktails that include bubbly for when you jingle and mingle. Why not try a clementine bellini? Juice a 600 gram bag of clementines, add three tablespoons of Grand Marnier and top up with a bottle of Prosecco. Or the heart warmer, it couldn't be simpler, add one part slow gin to three parts champagne. Or what about the poinsettia? Mix eight tablespoons of Grand Marnier or triple sec with two cups of cranberry juice and then top up with Prosecco. So sparkling is great for all celebrations, but it has a special connection with Christmas. This goes back to the Magi. You'll remember that the third of the three kings was Balthazar, who brought myrrh to the baby Jesus. Well, regular fizz giggers will remember him best for the eponymous large champagne bottle, the Balthazar, holding 16 bottles, 12 litres of fizz, so one for every day of Christmas, which is 96 glasses of fizz for your guests. He's a very welcome Christmas visitor. Which brings me to another guest. No, not Santa, but his right-hooved man, Rudolph. And I know what you're thinking. This is a podcast about Christmas alcohol consumption and a guy with a red nose appears. He must have drunk too much. Well, apparently not. I don't know whether this is proof that scientists have a sense of humour or whether it's proof that they don't. But some serious scientific research went into the cause of Rudolph's nasal glow. Reindeer have a lot of blood vessels in their nose. So one group of scientists identified the glow as nasal mucosa induced by the exertion of pulling a heavy load, excessive stresses endured whilst flying with Santa and the sleigh in tow, resulting in cerebral and bodily hypothermia, overworking the nasal cooling system, causing the nose to glow. In short, Rudolph was having such a hard physical workout that he had to cool down through his nose. Whereas another group of scientists concluded that Rudolph had an evolutionary bioluminescence of the nose, which made him perfect and the natural selection for reindeer lead in Christmas fog. But whatever caused his red nose, it wasn't alcoholic indulgence. So, anyone for pudding? What about a delicious slice of chocolate Yule dog? This decorative pudding hides a pagan past. Yule is the name of the winter solstice and it's a Nordic tradition to burn a Yule log, or rather an entire tree. The largest part of the tree would be placed in the hearth and the rest of it would stick out of the hall. The log would be lit from the remnants of last year's log and it was fed into the fire throughout the 12 days of Christmas. In England, an oak is chosen, whereas in Scotland, they prefer birch. But personally, my favourite Yule log is the chocolate one.
So there we have it, Fizzerati. We've explored the many merry Fizmas traditions and I hope to have given you some Christmas cheers. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll be exploring the fizz that is closest to my heart and to my lips, English sparkling wine. Until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin. <laughs>